Find out what the whole world is thinking in the agenda. The UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres says that when it comes to climate action, there's no time for pointing fingers or twiddling thumbs. It's time for a game-changing, quantum-level compromise between developed and emerging economies. And the place for that is the UN Climate Change Conference, COP27, taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, with the strapline Together for Implementation, which hints at less talk and more action. Around 90 heads of state have said they'll be there. The first legally binding global treaty on climate change was in 2015 at COP21. The Paris Agreement committed 196 parties to keep global warming under 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Last year at COP26 in Glasgow, we saw a flurry of new pledges around coal, deforestation, methane emissions and more. Developed countries promised to provide developing countries with $100 billion a year for climate mitigation and adaptation. But that's a target they are unlikely to reach until 2023 at the earliest. Global temperatures too were off point. Summit President Alok Sharma concluded that though 1.5 degrees remains alive, its pulse is weak. But ahead of COP27, the UN has now said there's no credible pathway to one and a half degrees in place. And the only way to limit the climate crisis is a rapid transformation of societies. And has the onslaught of climate disasters in 2022 left little breathing space for the international community to really respond? And how far has the war in Ukraine put climate action on the back burner? After all, young activist Greta Thunberg said the last COP was little more than blah, blah, blah. As we heard there, the latest report from the United Nations Environment Programme makes for pretty grim reading. So what needs to be done at COP27 to at least try to save the planet? Joining me now from Nairobi is Nicholas Hegelberg, Senior Programme Coordinator at the Climate Change Programme of the UNEP. Thanks ever so much for, for joining us. Now, I'd like to talk about your latest report because it said now that there's no credible pathway to that 1.5 degrees centigrade goal. Uh, so how did that happen? And does it mean that COP26 that took place in Glasgow last year failed? Uh, thank you, Julia, for having me. So... Um, our, our report focuses on, on the ambition of the countries, the ambition they put forward. And it's that ambition that is falling short. So we're not uh, putting forward the ambition and then the implementation thereof to meet what scientists tells us where the, the emission needs to be by 2030. So we're still on a pathway towards about 2.8 degree warning, war, warming. And uh, even if we would implement everything, absolutely everything that countries have put forward, we would be on a pathway to 1.8 degrees. But that really uh, requires us to implement everything. In terms of uh, COP26, the one that, uh, that was held last year in Glasgow, we still... Um, it's a progression from each of these conference of parties uh, that they negotiate about different elements of of um, of the um, uh, Paris Agreement, and in this particular COP, so last year's COP, uh, they requested countries to go back and increase their ambition further. And I'm afraid that uh, only a few countries put forward a stronger ambition 
and that additional ambition only shaved off about 1% of the emissions that were, are projected for 2030. The only way the world can limit the most severe aspects of, of climate, the climate crisis is a rapid um, transformation of society. So how rapid are we talking and how radical a transformation? Uh, we're talking about a very rapid uh, change in, in how business is done right now. So currently, we're still increasing emissions by about 1% to 1.1% a year. And uh, we need to reduce emissions by 45% by 2030. So there's a very rapid reduce, reduction of emissions that are needed. And uh, that will require really a, a transformation across all the main economic sectors. So energy, industry, agriculture, food, uh, and, and uh, forestry, transport, and buildings. And uh, obviously it will depend a little bit from country to country, but more or less we need to employ all the climate solutions, the low carbon solutions that are there to be able to get back on a, a trajectory that could limit uh, global warming to 1.5 or frankly, even the two degree a target. Let's talk about how significant it is that COP27 is taking place in Africa. It's being billed as um, Africa COP. You're based in Africa, along with many of the countries who you could argue can least afford to tackle uh, climate change. Uh, how important do you think it is that this COP is taking place where it's taking place? Uh, Africa, indeed, as, as you alluded to, uh, has the least contributions to climate change. Only three to, to max four percent of global greenhouse gas emissions comes from this continent. And uh, thus, uh, Africa indeed uh, has a, a big stake in, in how climate change is solved, how finance is coming in to help solve the climate, uh, climate uh, issue. And uh, in terms of of, uh, of uh, um, Africa's agenda for this meeting, it's about climate finance. It's about uh, figuring out how loss and damage, which is the part of climate uh, disaster uh, that is beyond what you can adapt to, where you can't build resilience anymore. For example, uh, salt water coming into your freshwater table or a storm has uh, wiped out a a village or a city or where a low-lying island developing states is, is struggling with, with uh, sea level rise. So this COP in Sharm el-Sheikh uh, must focus on the loss and damage uh, items. And it's, it's too early to say which way it will go. I believe there will be some progress on, on loss and damage. I believe the uh, so-called Santiago network institutional setups will be agreed upon and there probably will be some kind of uh, financial commitments to finance the Santiago network. But uh, the developing countries are also asking for a finance mechanism for loss and damage and uh, that's where we'll still have to see how, how the negotiations pans out which starts now end of this week. China has called for, for this COP to, to really address the concerns and priorities of developing nations. How likely is that going to happen, do you think? I know you said it's possibly too, too early to call, but what momentum can you see? 
I think there will be some progress. Uh, the Egyptian government has uh, paid a lot of attention. So that, that's the incoming presidency for the conference of parties uh, have paid a lot of attention to, to loss and damage. And there's been quite a bit of, of uh, pre consultations and, and discussions uh, before the COP has started. So I believe there's going to be some progress especially on the institutional arrangements and, and technical assistance in terms of loss and damage. Uh, but I do think it's going to be quite difficult uh, to get to, to where developing countries hope uh, with, the, with the finance mechanism for loss and damage. I believe there's going to be progress on adaptation finance. So uh, there has been a call by the Secretary General of the UN that 50% uh, of climate finance should go to adaptation. And there's clear indication that that finance is shifting towards uh, adaptation. And there are also plenty of good opportunities of climate action that delivers both adaptation and emission reduction um, outcomes. So I believe there's going to be progress there as well. Nicholas Hegelberg, thank you very much. Thank you, Julia. One of the countries most affected by climate change is the Maldives. At the current rate of global warming, almost 80% of the archipelago could become uninhabitable by 2050. Well, with me now is Sabra Nordin, Maldives' special envoy for climate change. Thanks ever so much for, for coming on the programme. Now, the last seven years have been the warmest on record, and the war in Ukraine has exacerbated an energy and food insecurity. So... COP27 comes at a particularly critical moment, doesn't it? Yes, it does. But I would argue that all COPs have been critical for the Maldives because we've been on the front line of climate change for years. Um, we are really hoping that COP27 is one that is about implementation. Um, we need to see movement um, and strong movement on the reduction of emissions in order to make sure that we can stay on this 1.5 degree pathway. And we also need to see access and increased access to climate financing in order to make sure that you know, we can adapt to the, the impact that's already taking place and address loss and damage um, that is increasing every year. So what do you think is needed to really get an outcome um, from, from COP27 that, that's going to put the world on track to deal with these rising temperatures? The first one is obviously um, reducing um, emissions in order to, to, to maintain our 1.5 degree pathway. The other is climate financing, and especially for vulnerable countries like the Maldives. Um, we are in desperate need of funding for adaptation, uh, which currently is, comes out of um, either our state budget or is only um, access to very small scale programmed uh, budgeting, which doesn't address the national transformational level of adaptation that even the IPCC reports um, pointed out that uh, we need, especially with the impacts that's already taking place and what is um, projected to come if we don't um, mitigate as much as we need to. What kind of figures are we talking for, for the Maldives alone? Well, you know, it's unfortunately billions for the Maldives alone as well. Um, even because the Maldives is so small, infrastructure such as coastal protection is very expensive. But, but that is what we have to adapt with in order to um, deal with rising sea levels and also tidal surges. 
So you've said that the Maldives needs to incorporate more resilience um, into everything that you do. Does the whole world yes. need to do the same if we're going to stick to, let's face it, what are pretty tough climate goals? Yes, I do. I think we all need to make climate resilience central to everything we do. And in the Maldives, we can, we can do better um, in terms of how every single infrastructure project that we carry out in the Maldives has to address the climate impact. We have to build with the knowledge that the sea level is rising. But there's also limits to that level of adaptation and how high we can build up and the amount of funding that's available to do that. Uh, so, yes, I think it is very important for everybody, for everybody to keep climate resilience at the center of everything we do. Many people are already talking about COP27 as Africa COP because of where it's taking place. And, and Africa does remain one of the most vulnerable continents to climate change, despite its very low contribution to greenhouse gas emissions compared to, to rather more industrialised parts of the world. So how can mm. Africa, do you think, show leadership in this area? Um, I think Africa is already showing leadership, especially in terms of uh, climate advocacy, because they're one of the most vulnerable and hardest hits, uh, hardest hit when it comes to climate impact. But where they can also show um, an example is to show that we can achieve uh, levels of development without relying on the old fossil fuel structure. And we can turn to renewables and more climate friendly and climate resilient infrastructure in order to reach those levels of development. Now, there was a lot of talking um, at COP26. I mean, Greta Thunberg said it was just lots of uh, blah, blah, blah. But it did talk about the importance um, to scale up appropriate finance. They talked about this resilience, strengthening and reducing vulnerability to climate change. Um, do you think that, that COP27 is going to have similar goals, going to concentrate on more of the same and can deliver on those things? Well, we, we're still waiting on the $100 billion a year uh, goal. Uh, to be met and that those figures will still be up for discussion but also we're going to be looking at what comes after that goal has been met um, and for us for the Maldives the global goal on adaptation we, uh, the two-year work program which was decided on in Glasgow last year is very important because that uh, sets the, the, the metrics for how we measure um, what kind of adaptation is needed and um, what kind of adaptation is taking place and how much is needed to actually implement that level of adaptation. So, yes, I think, you know, I mean, there is going to be a lot more talk talking again, yeah. but um, it does it does bring about progress. I mean, not not at the pace that that the science requires and not at the progress that we would not at the pace that we would uh, necessarily like it to be at, but it, it is, it does bring us a level of progress. You talk about that crucial $100 billion pledge from developed nations to developing nations, which, as you say, they haven't quite met yet. Um, yes. Is this loss and damage piece a little bit like climate reparations? Is that, is that what it is? I think it's more of an aspect of climate justice that the highest emitters um, in the world have you know, got us to this point. But it's not always the ones that have emitted the most that are feeling the impacts at um, you know, the quickest or even the hardest. So addressing loss and damage, which we have to do now more regularly because of the increase in the intensity of events that are taking place, 
I mean, even this year alone, is is a, is climate justice um, is a form of climate justice. And with the pandemic, we have seen that billions and billions of dollars were raised within a very short frame of you know time frame to address um, immediate you know medical um, emergencies and and livelihood uh, issues. So the money is there, and I, and I think we can mobilize it. It's just we haven't seen it yet. So what needs to be done to make sure that this COP, COP27, taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh isn't a missed opportunity and it is a chance to, to actually mobilize action to tackle the climate emergency? Firstly, we need to see greater ambition and a drastic reduction in emissions. Without this, um, the progress we make in other, in other issues may be meaningless. And secondly, I think, you know, we need to we need the international financial system to come together to find a way to provide the most vulnerable countries with the um, access and the appropriate amount of funding that is needed to adapt to the to the current situation and what's projected to come um, as the crisis gets worse. You've stressed the importance of climate finance and you mentioned the pandemic when funds were raised pretty quickly all around the world to, to deal with that health emergency. But in terms of climate, that $100 billion pledge from developing nations still hasn't been met and probably won't be met before 2023. So what, what are we going to do about it? How are you going to get there? Yes. Well, I mean, I think, I think everyone needs to come to the realisation that the climate crisis should be at the centre of, of all the policy making that we do and, and that it is linked to the geopolitical situation, whether it's the energy crisis or uh, conflict. And in that way, um, we need to drastically reduce our emissions and come up with a system that allows us increased access to climate finance in order to adapt and to address loss and damage. Sabra Nordin, an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. At the recent 20th CPC Congress in Beijing, President Xi Jinping said it was time to speed up China's green transformation. But what exactly does that look like? And what will China be bringing to the table at COP27? Well, with me now from Beijing is environmentalist and director of the Institute of Public and Environmental Affairs, Ma Jun. Thanks for coming on the programme. Now, climate policy is one of the Chinese government's top priorities. How do you think things have changed since the last time the world gathered at COP26 in Glasgow last year. Yeah, last year we met in Glasgow and uh, reached a very, uh, uh, reached the due in a very tough situation. And this year, I have to say the situation uh, is, um, is not easier uh, at all. Uh, we're, we're facing a global energy uh, crisis with the surging energy price and um, and the pandemic COVID pandemic still linger on and uh, and 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 we're facing a real rising geopolitical tension with a war in Europe uh, all this have um, uh, ha have made major economies uh, uh, ramp up their fossil fuel production and and this is going to have a profound impact on the global climate response um, and um, and I think th this is just a harsh reminder that uh, the transition uh, is uh, to low carbon 
has uh, is far from being accomplished. I mean, that's why I think it's very important for President Xi to uh, to to uh, note to note in the Party Congress that uh, that China must uh, uh, accelerate the green transformation. Um, so I hope that in the uh, in this COP twenty seven. Um, uh, all the countries could note that and, uh, and, and hasten the process towards a low carbon uh, transition. And what are you hoping is going to emerge from COP27? Yeah, in the COP27, with all these multiple challenges, uh, um, I, I, yeah, I, I hope, of course, to see first and foremost China uh, stick, to, you know, stick to the uh, to, to the carbon peak and neutrality uh, target and um, and continue to support uh, the uh, global climate uh, uh, governance uh, and in the meantime I think it's uh, it's very important uh, for all the countries uh, to uh, to to build up trust and uh, and confidence uh, at this moment uh, there's a, unfortunately a lot of uh, misinformation spread on the, especially through social media on the uh, uh, on the situation in other parts of the world uh, so I think at this moment unity and um, and, and collaboration it's uh, extremely important so how to be, build up trust how to build up confidence uh, in this uh, in this cop 27 is crucial and in the meantime this is this will be a a COP meeting um, or uh, held in a developing country. So I think uh, all the many developing countries uh, have high expectations, uh, um, and um, and 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 we need to yep. seriously uh, uh, try to meet up with their their uh, their uh, expectation. Well, speaking of expectations, China has, of course, committed to becoming carbon neutral by 2060. Is that soon enough? Carbon neutrality uh, by, uh, by China is extremely important. China is, uh, is now the largest current greenhouse gas emitter, and China's carbon dioxide emission is about one-third, close to one-third of the global total. So it is very important for China to... Uh, to, to neutralize it. It's more than one, the 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide, uh, along with uh, other non-carbon uh, CO2 uh, greenhouse gases. Uh, and it, although this is uh, uh, this, this going to be later than some of the uh, uh, Western countries, uh, uh, but we need to keep in mind that China is still going through this massive uh, Industrialization and urbanization, and um, and and the time frame between uh, between uh, China's uh, the peaking of the carbon emission and the carbon neutrality will be the shortest uh, in the in the world. So the challenge is uh, is really big, and um, and China's commitment uh, will be crucial for the whole world. Energy security is one of the key factors which will underpin many conversations, no doubt, um, at um, COP27. How is China approaching things in that area? China uh, is, uh, at this moment, uh, um, the central government uh, uh, have decided to uh, 
to spare no efforts uh, to ensure energy security because this is uh, so important uh, to China's uh, stability and social uh, uh, economic development. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, China is uh, releasing some of the uh, coal uh, capacity and um, uh, try to serve to use coal to serve as the base load. Um, unfortunately, at this moment, you know, China is only rich in the coal resources. Uh, so, uh, so, so that uh, has been become the the primary uh, source to ensure energy security. But in the mid to long term, China is going to have to depend more on the renewable energy. So, China have uh, uh, China has been spending uh, making massive investment on renewable energy, and China has already have the world's largest uh, renewable energy capacity. For now, from me, Juliet Mann, and from all of the Agenda team here in London, goodbye.